0: It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Good to be with you. Immigration was an issue we heard a lot about in the 2016 election from candidate Donald Trump.
1: When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime. They're rapists. They are not our friend, believe me. No path to legalization unless they leave the country and come back. And you can call it deported if you want. The press doesn't like that term. You can call it whatever the hell you want. They're gone. We are going to build a great border
0: wall. And when he was elected, one of President Trump's first actions was a travel ban on Muslim countries.
1: We're going to take our case as far as it needs to go, including all the way up to the Supreme Court. And let me tell you something, I think we ought to go back to the first one and go all the way, which is what I wanted to do in the first one.
0: And during the 2018 midterms, the narrative changed, but the sentiment did not.
1: This is an invasion. When you see these caravans starting out with 20... Thousand people. That's an invasion. I was badly criticized for using the word invasion. It's an invasion.
0: And perhaps the most consequential, Trump's zero tolerance immigration policy was widely discussed by many. Stop
1: taking children. Keep families out of prison. In this huge warehouse are very large cages in which children have been separated from the, the parents. Bringing children with you doesn't guarantee you won't get prosecuted.
2: Nobody likes his policy. You saw the president on camera that he wants this to end. But everybody has, Congress he has to act. end it
3: Congress. his own. We all should be able to agree that in the United States of America, we will not intentionally separate children from their parents. We will not do that. We are better than that.
0: And even early on in the 2020 Democratic primary campaign... It was a major factor.
1: Democrats have to get off the back foot. We have to lead on this issue because we know it is right.
3: Down at the border, we've got to rework this entirely.
1: It should also f this all off. Get rid of Trump's zero tolerance policy, the remain in Mexico policy, and the metering policy. You now, did you make a mistake with those deportations? The president did the best thing that was able to be done at the time. How about time? you? I'm the vice president of the United States.
0: But the issue of immigration was rarely mentioned in the 2020 general election campaign in the fall. I wondered if the lack of policy debate about immigration was deliberate or if the issue was sidelined, like most things, by the pandemic and its economic fallout. And I wanted to understand what that may mean for the future of immigration policies put in place by the Trump administration.
3: So I called Dara Lind, and I'm a reporter with ProPublica covering immigration to find out what she thinks. Really, this was a very strange campaign because the pandemic and the economic crisis that it engendered took up so much space that you just didn't see – a more conventional policy debate on what are the candidate stances on various issues. I don't know that immigration was uniquely sidelined. I think it just is the most obvious example of how the 2020 election kind of prevented any sort of normal campaign policy rollouts because Trump had been able to set it as a big culture war issue in 2016, 2018.
0: As President-elect Biden is rolling out his what he calls his top priorities, his top four priorities are coronavirus, economic recovery, racial equality and climate change. And there were a number of Democrats and progressive groups who were not happy that immigration wasn't listed in there. What do you think that is about? And and what do you see as sort of the Biden path
3: forward on this issue? So when we talk about what a president's priorities are, I think that there are particular parts of the job where that matters more than others. First of all, there is a question about what would the legislative priorities be that the Biden administration Mm -hmm. would be pushing on Congress, which obviously will matter a lot more if Democrats take the Senate. And in that regard, there is a lot of very limited oxygen. I mean, I'm thinking back to the first two years of the Obama administration when there was a lot of Democratic infighting about what the legislative priority would be after health care and immigration very much lost out in that fight. If you believe that the current immigration kind of policy setup is broadly broken and needs a big legislative fix, including, you know, legalizing the 11 million or so unauthorized immigrants in the country, then like, yes, not being listed as a priority is a big problem in that regard. But because the executive branch is large and diverse, and there are a lot of different people working on different issues, it doesn't necessarily slow the ability of immigration, you know, regulations and that kind of thing, executive actions to not be a priority. It's a question of political capital. And that, I think, is where there's still a little bit of progressive worry that the Biden administration is going to be less aggressive than some progressives want, not because they're focusing on other things, but because they don't necessarily want to bring attention to immigration as an issue.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point because the person that um, Biden has tapped to lead the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, comes from the Obama era. You know, there was a lot of criticism of the Obama administration's hesitancy on kind of, you know, moving in a more progressive way. So does his DHS pick suggest that, indeed, this will look more like an Obama-era policy on immigration than one that we heard about a lot during the 2020 Democratic primaries, which was much more progressive.
3: Mayorkas is, I wouldn't say a unity pick necessarily, but I was honestly surprised at how warm the reception to him was among groups that were criticizing the Obama administration. It does seem that he personally had a reputation for being on the more progressive side of that administration and to be fully honest I think it doesn't hurt that that's a job that not a whole lot of people want. It's not a job that pays a lot of political dividends. And having someone who's very experienced in the department who wants the job is, you know, that that's a plus. The big success of the Obama administration at DHS was its 2014 executive actions, which a couple of those got blocked in court, but they did successfully rein in ICE's ability to just, you know, arrest and deport unauthorized immigrants without paying any attention to kind of the equities involved and and getting them to exercise significant prosecutorial discretion. And that happened in large part because the then DHS secretary, Jay Johnson did a lot of internal stakeholder work and built up a lot of legitimacy. So having someone who already kind of has those relationships is, is probably the way you're going to get change done. But I do think that as we see kind of some of the lower level staff names that it's just very hard to name a bunch of people who weren't in the Obama administration and weren't in the Trump administration, not necessarily people who were political in the Trump administration, but senior civil servants who stayed in government and ended up having some decision-making power. And I do think that there are are probably going to be fights. We saw it a little bit when Cecilia Munoz, who was kind of Mm -hmm. Obama's point person on immigration, got named to the transition team. Uh, There will be upcoming battles on who should get to make immigration policy decisions under Biden and the tension between having people who know the system and having people who haven't been associated with policies that, as you said, the party has tried to turn its back on. So let's
0: think about, you know, the realities of being the president, which is, one, you have this sort of proactive agenda, some of the things that a President Biden can do on immigration, on things like DACA, et cetera, through executive authority or push legislatively. And then there's the things that happen that you have no control over, like, for example, crisis in Central America that continues to um, push people to to seek refuge in the United States. So can we talk through the tension between both of those things? Like how much of the Biden administration do you think is going to be just dealing with in a reactionary mode to another border surge, given how much uh, struggle is still happening in Central America and, and in Mexico.
3: That really is the million-dollar question. And again, it's not necessarily a matter of, oh, if they have to be responding to events, they won't have the policy bandwidth mm. to, to do other things. Like, There's nothing in the levers of government that says, oh, if uh, if more than X people are coming to the U.S.-Mexico border in any given month, you have to take staffing away from fully reinstating the DACA program, which is a totally different population. But again it is a question of political capital and we saw in 2014 that the obama administration's efforts to you know to take broad executive action on immigration were delayed by several months when they had to deal with a surge of unaccompanied children coming to the US-Mexico border, partly because it was something that they just needed to direct a lot of resources to very quickly, but partly because they didn't like the optics of being seen as dovish on immigration when the border was quote unquote overwhelmed. And so Mm -hmm. there is nothing in Central America has made it any Better for people to stay there than it was a year ago. We saw really, really low numbers of northward migration in the spring and summer. And for a bit, it looked like that was the new normal because countries were really shutting down their mobility policies due to the coronavirus because people were worried about catching it if they, you know, if they moved through a bunch of different areas. But what it seems like in retrospect is that that was more of a temporary pause and that smugglers were deliberately pausing their operations and then restarted them in the fall. And so between that, the economic collapse that has given a, made a lot of people just totally out of work, and hurricanes that have struck Central America in mm-hmm. recent weeks, there are so many reasons to leave. And even if Donald Trump were, still, were going to be still in office next year, it would seem that there would be a relative rise from these mind bogglingly low levels of migration this year. And what we saw under the Trump administration is that relative rise is the point, right? The Trump administration was the victim of its own success at the border in some ways. They had really, really low levels of apprehensions in the first few months of the Trump term as migrants appear to have kind of taken a wait and see approach uh, before deciding whether to leave. And because they couldn't sustain those low levels, they often acted as if they were in crisis footing, even when, you know, historically apprehensions weren't that high. So if that approach remains, then yeah, the Biden administration is going to be on a politically defensive footing very early on. It may or may not be the case that the Number of people coming gets to the point where it actually does exceed capacity. And I think that also will depend on what border policies are, because the current policy at the border is that everybody just gets expelled back to Mexico or deported back to their home countries in a matter of really just hours um, because of an order put up by the cdc early in the coronavirus pandemic and if the biden administration chooses to continue that policy it'll be a little easier for them logistically to deal with more people but even if from a capacity standpoint you're not reaching overwhelmed numbers the idea of a kind of media attention to a border crisis or media attention to rising numbers, coupled with the fact that immigration hawks are already saying that any rise in numbers will be because people are enthusiastic about a Biden amnesty, you know, might make the kind of people who were making the decisions in 2014, a little bit worried about being seen as being too aggressively left or too aggressively. Yeah, exactly. On the issue.
0: Dara Lind covers immigration policy for ProPublica. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, began under the Obama administration in August of 2012. The first lawsuit challenging its legality was filed that same month. Now, DACA grants temporary legal status to undocumented immigrants who were brought to the United States as children.
4: Hi, my name is Syria Alvarez Valle. I am currently a DACA recipient uh, living in Salt Lake City, Utah. My family immigrated to the US in 2001 uh, when I was about five years old. My family has called Utah home for the past 20 years. I grew up in the same city, went to elementary, middle school, high school, and college in Salt Lake. And so, yeah, Utah has been home and it's been a good journey for my family. Uh, from the people that we've met who have been supportive um, in our lives, despite our immigration status. DACA recipients are awarded some security and
0: stability, but it's not a long-term solution. There is a renewal process they must go through every couple of years.
4: I Got DACA when I was a senior in high school, right in the middle of my senior year was when my application was approved and I've had DACA ever since. And it's been like eight years, seven years now. Uh, And because of DACA, I was able to, one, have hope for the future. I think it allowed me to see more stability in my life than I had imagined before. And two, I was able to pay my way through college. I graduated from the University of Utah in 2017, and now I work full-time as a policy analyst at Voices for Utah Children. The DACA
0: program itself is actually quite popular. A recent Pew Research survey found that almost three-quarters of Americans favor granting permanent legal status to immigrants who came illegally to the U.S. when they were children. Even so, Congress has been deadlocked on the issue, and the DACA program continues to face legal challenges.
2: Hi, I'm Diane Solis. I'm a senior writer at the Dallas Morning News. I write often about immigration and social justice. It's been a litigation roller coaster for those who hold DACA. There's about 650,000 people who hold DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And there's new litigation that began in 2018 when the state of Texas filed suit against the U.S. government. Trump was already in office. He'd already announced that he wanted to end DACA. So MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal and Defense Fund, jumped in and said um, they doubted that Trump would adequately defend DACA. So they were going to. And they got 22 DACA recipients together. And so now they're defending DACA. It's been on a slow track. But now, next week, there will be a hearing in Houston on this litigation. It's the only litigation that deals with whether DACA is lawful.
0: If the judge rules against DACA, what happens then? There are uh, folks who try to bring it to a higher court and argue it. Does it go to the Supreme Court? What, what happens?
2: Absolutely. Maldives has said they will immediately appeal and we could have this back at the Supreme Court. But it's unlikely that it would end immediately. The the MALDEF attorneys feel that it's unlikely that Hannon would immediately end it, and that there would be a phase-out of the work permits. DACA provides a work permit, a two-year work permit, and a deportation reprieve.
0: So is the only way, then, to ensure that the DACA program exists without the roller coaster like ride as you pointed out, that it's it is entrenched into into law is that Congress has to pass some legislation. It cannot continue in this sort of executive order limbo.
2: That is what the immigration advocates and those that hold DACA want. They want permanent legislation that puts them on a pathway to U.S. citizenship. But as we know, Congress has been in gridlock for uh, a long, long time over controversial issues. All that could change uh, given uh, after the outcome in, in Georgia, right, with the Senate. But could this limbo go on and on. Well, we do have another situation where there is a limbo that has gone on and on. And it's something that's known as TPS, temporary protected status. And we've got Salvadorans who've been in temporary protected status for about 20 years.
0: So there's a history here. There's a precedent here for the U.S. immigration policy to basically go along in this uh, year-by-year fashion rather than, or administration-to-administration fashion, rather than being actual settled law?
2: Definitely. There's definite history for that, and for those that hold these kind of limbo statuses It's very hard for folks to plan their life in one-year or two-year increments. It's difficult to plan a career, to plan to get married, to have children, if you have the threat of a deportation hanging over you. It builds emotional stress.
0: Diane Solis, I really appreciate you taking the time to help walk us through this process. Uh, Thank you for all you do in, in covering it for the Dallas Morning News.
2: Well, thank you for
0: having me. Syriac Alvarez-Valle, the DACA recipient we heard from at the top of our segment, she can bury the sigh of relief for at least another two years. She learned this week that her application had been renewed. She told us what that means for her personally.
4: With my new DACA renewal, that means I have my uh, DACA card for another two years, which is really great and can help me as I think through my future um, as I plan going back to school. I am going to continue working this year and then applying to grad school programs uh, this upcoming fall, and then hopefully next fall starting school uh, grad school program. And I think part of that hope does come also from the Biden administration knowing that even though I may only have a two-year uh, DACA um, renewal, I do, I do have hope that one, there won't be as many challenges to the DACA program these next couple of years, coming from the administration itself, and two, hoping for a permanent solution from Congress uh, these next couple of four years.
0: Since November, we've been talking to the newly elected members of Congress, checking in with them before they're sworn in on January 3rd. This week, I sat down with
5: Cliff Bentz. I'm the congressman-elect from Oregon Congressional District 2.
0: Bence is a Republican, and like his predecessor, Congressman Greg Walden, he'll be the only Republican serving in Oregon's delegation. I started out by asking him to describe his district.
5: Well, Oregon 2 is one of the largest congressional districts in the United States. There's much debate about exactly where it fits on the list but i think it's number 7 it's little just a fraction less than 70,000 square miles so it's uh, as my predecessor congressman walden likes to say bigger than any state east of the mississippi and then he has many other means of trying to show how how large the district is but it takes about 7 8 hours to drive across it mm-hmm. it's um it's a it's a beautiful space a very very uh, a varied varied in how its um, ge- geography uh, exists, and it's, it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful place if you like lots of open space because uh, we have a lot of it. Wonderful people in it, ranchers, farmers. We have a really really wide variety of folks. We have the Columbia River on the north side. We have California on the on the south. We have Nevada, Idaho toward the east. It's a uh, very, very different when it comes to the people that live within it, which which I like.
0: You know, you're coming into a Washington D.C. where Republicans are in the minority, though by a smaller margin than many had expected. What can you tell them, and and what did you learn about being in the minority party, um, where? You know, in in your case, you had a governor that was a Democrat come to Washington. It's the the president who's the the Democrat. Um, what did you learn about working with the majority party, bipartisanship? What worked? What didn't work? Should we throw our hands up and say it's never going to work? You can't you can't cross party lines these these days, or or what?
5: I hope it's not the the the, the latter <laughs> I, I would I would say that what I learned is that you 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 have to rely if you're in the minority a lot on on the majority on what what they're going to allow you to do. I mean, it's kind of up to them. and I learned you uh, know in, in the last couple of years I was in the Oregon state Senate that the, the politics of Portland, Oregon had made it extraordinarily difficult for my Democrat friends in the Senate to, even allow me as a as a republican to be at the at the table i was the co-chair of the carbon committee the so called carbon committee and i was frozen out of of the discussions for five months on a very very serious cap and trade bill one of the one of the more aggressive approaches to managing carbon that, that i've seen and i was just not allowed i wasn't allowed in the room and and that was because my democrat friends told me later uh the folks that put them in office back in portland didn't want a republican in the room and so they didn't allow didn't allow me in and and ultimately that that meant that we we actually we we republican senators walked out to to deny the democrats a quorum and thus prevented the cap and trade bill from passing but i will share with you and i've told it to everybody that that's not the right way to do business. The right way to do business is try to sit down and work these things out. But if you're not at the table, it's pretty tough to do. But uh, the thing I learned when I was in Salem is that if if I worked really hard to know more about the issues than anybody else at the table, generally that had a value. And generally people wanted to hear what you had to say. and And if they all viewed the problems as a common problem as opposed to just Somebody's problem, one side or the others, uh, then they wanted good thinking and and hard work, and so uh, I'm going to take that thought to to Washington D.C. and and hope that, hope that working hard and showing up and thinking and being civil will will uh, will work.
0: Um, I think a lot of people are hoping for the same thing, and and it's it's clear that you know that's something that President-elect Biden is also counting on, and is something that he campaigned on. um, But he also campaigned on a a pretty aggressive climate um, agenda, including, you know, zero net emissions by 2050. I'm wondering, as we think about the issues of climate going forward, the kinds of things you think you could support or work with Democrats or work with an administration getting... Actually accomplished. Like, where are the where are the places Democrats Republicans could come together on this?
5: There are many things in the climate space that work for large parts of my district that look suspiciously like adaptation. So, irrigation, for example, is a means of adapting to a dry climate, and we irrigate an awful lot of CD two. And so if you use words like adaptation and sequestration and innovation, those words resonate with people on both sides of the aisle. And if you can show people that you can save them money uh, by using uh, electric cars, for example, rather than paying for, for fuel, they'll knock you down to get to an electric car. And uh, there's there's many, and th- this is proven by if you go to a hardware store now, how many people are buying electric drills that have a cord on them? No, they'll be buying drills that have a battery because they're so much more convenient. So you need to find those and there are a lot of them as people get um, you know smarter about all these things and innovation happens uh, that you can you can find common ground. And you can move forward on one side of the aisle, you'll be saying, hey, this is because it's saving you money. On the other side of the aisle, people will be saying, hey, it's reducing carbon. And those are the kind of opportunities that exist all over the place. What what ends up happening, people get caught up in the politics of it. And uh, that's too bad, because that makes it very, very difficult.
0: Well, and your district, um, unfortunately, suffered incredible devastation with with wildfires this year. Um, Talk about how the issue of climate change um, has impacted those, you know, the the kinds of um, fires that you saw and whether that's the kind of thing that can also bring Democrats and Republicans together. That you may be a Democrat sitting in Portland, Oregon, but you see these wildfires going on in the districts you live in and say, well, gosh, there has to be a way we can together make sure stuff like this doesn't happen anymore.
5: One of the problems in talking about forests, most people, myself included, have a very difficult time understanding the sheer scale of the problem because probably if you look at Northern California, Oregon, Washington, you have about 100 million acres of forest. And this year, 1 million of those acres in Oregon burned up. I think 3 million down in California. And uh, that means we still have 96% of the forest to burn. And we don't want it to burn. The But the sheer size of the problem is extremely hard for people to understand. Mm-hmm. The number that was thrown about in how we would try to address this issue just in Oregon was $44 billion. Well, we're, we don't have $44 billion. It's, and the other thing that generally is overlooked is how long this problem is going to take to fix. If we stopped generating carbon tomorrow, it would be 40 years before things perceptibly changed. And so, what we have to do now is address the immediate problem, and then it, it, people can say, "Well, it's drier because of climate change." Let's assume it. Uh, if it's going to take 40 years to address the issue, and that assumed we stop generating carbon tomorrow, uh, this is a long-term problem that needs immediate attention and long-term attention. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, two two approaches. And the first one is to do a you know a risk analysis to let people know what what they're facing and and how how likely it is that their house is going to burn up we lost 2700 homes down in medford and we lost six seven hundred homes just outside of salem to fire uh the the one down in medford was not so much forest involved Uh, it was it was a different issue but still those those kinds of risks are up and down the west coast and, and we need to let people know what they need to do to save themselves in the short run in the long run that's, that's a great, big, huge issue, and it needs so much work. Um, and, and, and it's not just one solution. There's going to be dozens, dozens of solutions to try to address this issue. It's huge. One thing I want to point out why you ask this question: a lot of people don't understand that the additional CO2 in the air is driving much more aggressive growth of the forest. 12, 13, 14 percent, more growth than used to be the case just because there's so much more CO2 in the air that the trees are busy, you know, sequestering. And so this this makes the problem even more difficult to deal with.
0: You raise a really good point, which is there is a short term and the long term. And you've been in politics for a little while now, and you're coming to Washington. How challenging is it to get political figures to think outside of just the immediate short term?
5: Well, it's hard. Um, and, and social media has made it even more difficult when you come at it from the stand, my standpoint, having spent so many years in this space, you realize that, that a short term solution is really defrauding the people you're representing. It's really not, you're not doing your job. so it's, it's, um, that short term gain is just not worth it. And somehow you've, you've got to tell people, Hey, uh, this is a long-term play, and we're all going to have to work together over time, and eventually we'll get this problem solved. But, boy, the, 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 our whole society seems to be, uh, you know, they want immediate gratification. I, and, and this this, this uh, COVID situation is a great example, people being forced to actually wait. It's a real lesson.
0: How, how has COVID impacted you and, and your constituents? I mean, uh, obviously we know the, the toll that it's taking nationally. But if, if you are talking to, to folks in your community um, specifically, how, how are they processing this moment?
5: Well, it's a huge challenge. In fact, the local restaurants in my little town asked me yesterday if I would please come to a meeting with them Sunday at two in the afternoon up in a little coffee shop. Uh, we used to go there every every morning, and we don't now because you don't get to go in. and And this is true across the an entire landscape of, of, of restaurants in in Oregon, and they're going broke, and the people are their lives are being destroyed, and it's not it's not just that space. It's all kinds of spaces like that, and these people are desperate, and they're and they're saying, "Hey, we know we we know you're not in the state government anymore, but you know all of us. Would you please come down and and give us some hope?" And it's really really challenging. It's this is really bad, and and um and of course we want the work that they're doing in Congress now to try to help some of these people bridge over the next, you know, next year, because I think it's going to take that to get back to where we all want to be. Uh, but uh, the, the people, some people are doing really well in this situation, and a whole bunch are doing really, it's really bad. And so how, how we try to help is is a real question. And, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to say when I go down there on Sunday, other than uh, I'll do my best to to, to help.
0: Congressman-elect Bentz, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. I wish you the best of luck. Please stay safe out there.
5: <laughs> Thank you so much. And, right. and of course, you also.
0: Cliff Bentz is the Republican congressman-elect for Oregon's 2nd Congressional District. It's hard to believe we are just a week away from Christmas and two weeks away from the beginning of a brand new year. But as we toast away 2020 and its many miseries, we also know that we're just turning pages on a calendar. Come January 1st, we will still have a virus raging, people hurting, and a political system in need of repair. That's why we need to dedicate our celebrations this holiday season to the struggles still ahead. To see the new year not as a time to forget, but a time to recommit. Even with the vaccine on its way, we know that getting it out to everyone who needs it is going to test our patience and resolve, and it will test supply lines and distribution plans. It will also test our ability to stop the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories. Plenty of people who know better are already trying to undercut faith in the vaccine and the lethality of COVID itself. So enjoy that eggnog, light those candles, give out virtual Zoom hugs to your friends and family, but also remember that 2021 is going to test our endurance and patience. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jake Howitt is our director and sound designer. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. You can call us anytime at eight seven seven eight My Take, or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E Walter. The show is at the Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on the Takeaway.